Welcome to Living Off Course. Join us if you're fascinated by people who break free of societal norms to live life on their own terms. I'm Zita Moran, and with my co-host, Janie Lim, we're exploring what it takes to live a life that's authentically yours. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Living Off Course. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest. He's Brian Basham, who's a technologist and a coach. And not only any coach, he's actually my coach. I'm definitely biased, but I'm a super fan. He usually works with leaders in the tech industry, but loves working with all kinds of people who are open to exploring how their emotions are driving their relationships with others and themselves and want to go on a journey of self-discovery. In this episode, we dive into how Brian went from being an MIT grad and having a great career at Google to deciding to pursue his real passion of coaching. We also get into the fascinating world of the type of coaching Brian does, which is his own synthesis of many of the most powerful coaching modalities available today. I hope you'll join us for this enlightening, wisdom-packed interview. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Let's start with how you went from engineering to coaching. Like, what was that journey about? Totally. There's a few different things. A big moment for me was I was working at Google. I was a product manager at the time. And there was a woman on my team that was having conflict with another team member. She came to me and was in distress and really wanted to talk through it with me. We talked for about an hour and I really enjoyed it. And she came back the next week and she was like, oh my God, my relationship with this person is really changed. Thank you so much for talking to me and listening and giving some advice. And then she said, I know that you'd rather be doing your job right now. The thing you want to be doing isn't really like spending time talking to me. So like, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I, I know I don't want to take too much of your time. And I'm sitting there thinking like, this has been the most rewarding and the most engaging part of my past couple of weeks. And I feel guilty that I'm not quote unquote, like doing my job. But if I could just spend all of my time doing this, whatever this is, like that would be amazing. And yeah, having that clarity that one, that's true for me. And two, that isn't true for most people. Like most people don't want to listen to their coworkers rant about another one of their coworkers for an hour. Yeah, something just clicked. And I'm like, I really want to explore some kind of career path. I don't even know I knew what coaching was at that point, but some kind of career path with interacting with people and their communication and their fulfillment and all of that. In a longer arc, what was going on in my life at the time, I think at the end of 2016, I split up with my wife at the time and I had blamed her for, I think unconsciously like blamed her for a lot of the challenges in my life or the things that I didn't like before I felt like I had a lot of friends and I felt like I had very few or really no close friends at that time. And six months later, I was living on my own. I had this job that I thought was my dream job that I always wanted, working at Google on AI for medical stuff, getting to work on this project that I thought was really cool. And I wasn't happy. I was like, oh, all the same things that I was really, like I left this relationship 
for that I blame the relationship for are still the case. And I reached a point in my career I never really thought I would get to. And this still sucks. <laughs> so I started talking to different people and getting interested in different books and personal development programs. And that became the focus of my life for a good year or so, good year and a half, maybe before deciding to leave Google. So I started when I started at Google, I think the thoughts I would have in the shower would mostly be around the product and the math and how to build better data labeling tools for radiologists and ophthalmologists to label chest x-rays and fundus photos and all that. And by the time I left, my thoughts in the shower were mostly about the team and interactions with other teams and like nuances of conversations and like my own beliefs and mental state. And yeah, that's only deepened, as you can imagine, since since leaving Google. So that's I decided to go and take some courses I, through CTI and through Joe Hudson and then studying internal family systems and went on a crazy adventure. Oh, my God. Okay, so let's jump into that. So tell us, you left Google and then you started pursuing full-time learning? Yeah. When I left Google, I knew I wanted to work. I wanted to do something around human psychology and teamwork and collaboration. And I didn't know what, and I thought I wanted to do something technology oriented, but I didn't have the skills yet. So the way I thought about it was, I really want to upskill my own one-on-one and group facilitation skills and really understand what that world would be and then see what's possible from there. So that was kind of the context through which I decided to go start, among other things, uh, go to CTI Coactive Training Institute, like the biggest coaches training school. But after the first weekend there, they really encourage you. It's like, if you're interested in coaching, like go see if you can get a client. And I got a client like that week or something like that, who ended up being my client for a year. He was really amazing. And I just, as soon as I stepped into it, I was like, oh, I love being a coach. I love this kind of interaction with people. I really was pursuing it as my career and it'll always be something that I do. That's like a big part of my life. I'm really fascinated by you were at your doing your dream job at Google and you described that there was a, a kind of a period of a year and a half or so where you kind of transitioned, where your focus became um, kind of matured more into coaching. When you decided to leave, was there a lot of resistance or did it feel like a natural transition? Everything just kind of aligned for me. There was a ton of resistance. Let me be really clear. There was a ton of resistance. Some of the things that led to that, there's a friend of mine, Jeff Lieberman, who had just finished up an 18-month course called Earthshakers with a teacher named Joe Hudson. And I went to my friend Forrest's house at the, he lived at the Consciousness Hacking House at the time. And like Forrest has been my friend for many years. He's He was my manager with my first job out of college. And he's really into meditation. And I would always reach out to him every six months to like get meditation advice. And I ended up at his house. And Jeff, he was, Forrest was telling me, oh, this guy, Joe, just came and had a retreat here this weekend for two days. It was really great. You really like it. And Jeff comes in. I hadn't seen for 10 years, but he was 
my GRT at my dorm at MIT, like a grad resident tutor or something, like the dorm daddy grad student. <laughs> and we recognized each other. And I was like, oh my God, are you Jeff Lieberman? Are you Brian Basham? And he was like, let's catch up. And we went to dinner and he was excited to share some of the techniques that he had been learning in this program. And I was sharing with him. I wasn't really happy in my job. I didn't really know what I wanted. And he asked me a lot of these questions and had me say a statement and just saw what arose in me. And the statement that we arrived at was something like, I have to give up what I'm good at to pursue my passion or something like that. And it came from this place, this deep fear. It's like, oh my God, I went to MIT. I've have all these like math accolades. I've worked in tech. I can get an interview at any tech company pretty easily. It's a really lucrative field. And I'm talking about going into coaching where I have like, there's nothing that really distinguishes me from anybody else, especially on paper. And like, what the hell am I thinking? And I couldn't even get the sentence out of my mouth. It was so challenging. I was crying and he guided me through this. And I was saying the sentence and just watching the emotion that would arise as I tried to say it pretty neutrally. And there was like all this grief. And I was crying in the middle of this Thai restaurant in San Francisco. And I'm just crying and crying. And then it just lessens. And then I say it again. And it feels clean. And like, not that it's true that I'd have to give up everything I'm good at to pursue my passions, but that suddenly be okay if it were true. And the next day I went and I talked to my product manager mentor and I'm like, you know, sometime I think in the next six months, I might want to try exploring doing careers more directly working with people. I don't know what that'll look like. And at the time I was technically a software engineer, but on a product management rotation and tech lead I was working with. After hearing this news, he was really supportive. And then he came back to me a few days later and said, actually, you know, we're building out the vision for this product for a really long time. I want this to, like, if you're not going to be here past six months, like, maybe it's better for somebody else to do this. And I felt really, then a lot of other emotions came up because this was a project I had started. I felt this hurt. I also felt responsible, like I was abandoning the team in some way. And another leader at Google helped me process those emotions. He's like, you know, you're not responsible for the team. Everyone's going to be okay. And like lots more tears. And then coming to this point of like, oh, like I can really just do something new and what I want now. And like, yeah, that was really magical. Wow. I have a quick question. Were you always emotionally aware? Because that's a very rare thing to be so balanced in your left and right brains. Yes and no. So my mom's a therapist and she's amazing. And my whole life, I think I've been very interested in other people's emotions and other people's thoughts and beliefs. So I'd be curious and ask a lot of questions. You know, I've been to Burning Man many times. Years ago, my idea of fun at Burning Man is like, we're not sober. Let's talk to other people, like find couples and ask about how they fight or something like that. Like that's always been a, and always really into like psychedelics and the exploration of different states of consciousness. I think I credit like psychedelics really early on in college for opening up my ability to like see things from other people's perspectives and empathize more. 
So that's always been a part of me. At the same time, I think I, until the past few years, had very low awareness of like my own emotions and particularly like my own physiological states. I remember I was like reading all these books and doing these exercises, particularly from Waking the Tiger, a book about about somatic experiencing and focusing. And both of those are very like are all about connecting to the physiological sensations happening in your body as a guide towards your own emotional reality and to be able to resolve trauma, essentially. And after doing some of these exercises, there was a day that I'm at work and I'm in this meeting and I'm like proposing this project and someone's like, wouldn't it be easier if we did it this way? And I'm like, no, like we have to do it this way because this is what's going to fit in the roadmap. And I don't even know what I'm saying. But I realize in that moment, I'm like, oh, my forearms are tight and my fists are clenched. (laughs) And like, oh, I'm angry right now. Huh. And it sounds silly now saying it, but it was like the, the, I would get really adamant about things and like dig in and be like, no, we're doing it this way and be really domineering. And I never knew that I was like that before and particularly like, could never see it happening in the moment. And there's this shift that happens. I think some people talk about like with awareness comes a little bit of distance and with that distance comes choice. And I was able to in that moment be like, oh, I'm frustrated. Like, I'm sorry. Let's talk about this later. And that's a really long answer to your question. But no, I haven't always been very aware, particularly of myself. Best answer ever. Thank you for that, Brian. Fascinating. Yeah, I remember being at Burning Man and meeting this woman who is a psychotherapist and talk and her talking about body awareness. And I'm like, I did not get it at the time. This was this was probably in 2016, something like that. And um, totally not understanding what was important about the body at all. And I remember telling her like, yeah, I kind of identify more as a brain in, in a meat sack. And <laughs> Now I like, I support all these people and bring awareness to their physiological sensations. And it's like the, one of the most important things for like bringing awareness and choice and freedom to your life. Yeah. And what are the kind of modalities that you use then with the kind of for body awareness? Yeah. There's like different modalities for like supporting people and developing body awareness. That's a lot about like noticing. I think this interesting thing happens. And as a coach, I'm like relatively weak in this is kind of like identifying what's happening in the other person's body. But the way I experience it is in kind of two ways. One is like when someone's sharing something and I get a strong feeling in my body somewhere and it doesn't seem like it's mine. And I don't, I just kind of develop that sense. I'll name it and be like, Hey, are you like feeling something in your chest right now? And they'll check and be like, yeah, and it's totally magic. People try to scientize it and talk about mirror neurons and all of this, but for me, it's just total magic. And I have had enough experiences with people who have the same, where I'm experiencing something and they nail it spot on that it's just a direct experience of mine that I accept as part of what can exist in the world. That's one is it's like something's happening in my body and I'm like, hey, are you, this is what I'm noticing. Are you feeling this? And another is like hearing someone's tone of voice. I can kind of imagine what I would be 
feeling behind that and how my body would be feeling that would like generate that tone of voice. But it's not really an intellectual practice. I'm not so much thinking about it, but I'm kind of like modeling with my own body versus my own body reacting to the other person having something. So it's kind of different between whether they're like having a really strong response to something or whether it's kind of like muted and under the surface. I don't even know how to say that. But a lot of the practice of having somebody get into their body is like one, being able to reflect and name what you're seeing and guide their awareness there. And two, like doing some psychoeducation and teaching people more about what the value of bringing awareness to the body is. But if someone has extremely low body awareness, that's challenging for me because I don't have particularly high body awareness myself. But for people that like can have more access or at least some access, that's a lot easier. So Ryan, um, for uh, people who are just becoming aware of this concept of body awareness, where do you recommend they get started to learn more? Great question. Really depends on the person and kind of where they are on their journey. I think like for somebody like me that was extremely dissociated, like very much lived in my head. Like for me, going to concerts and going and dancing was not really fun because I'd be in my intellectual mind the whole time. I'd be kind of watching and looking and telling stories and thinking and like just being in my body and dancing and enjoying that like was not a natural experience for me. I was very out of my body in a lot of ways. I think the first steps are much more around like just getting any body awareness at all. And I think the big things there are two books are great, both Waking the Tiger and Focusing. Yeah, I would say probably Focusing by Genlin and really a lot of exercises in there about quote unquote, the felt sense that are really good, as well as if you're interested in like having facilitation or therapy, somebody who specializes in embodiment, if you're looking for a therapist, like somebody who's either a somatic experiencing practitioner, a Hakomi practitioner, or an internal family systems practitioner, like those are pretty body focused therapy modalities and guided meditations that are body focused. Even just Headspace has the body scan and doing that, or I'm sure on YouTube, there's like guided body scan kinds of meditations and just having that practice even 10 minutes a day of like going through your body and naming as much as you can without a story about what the, what the emotion is just as a physiological sensations what you're experiencing can have a dramatic impact on increasing body awareness so would you say that your experience of living is now different because of this work Absolutely. This work is a whole bunch of different things, but my moment to moment experience of living is night and day different. I used to spend, I got to say like 90% of my life waiting for the thing I was doing to be over. If I was exercising, I'm constantly looking at the clock. If I'm at dance, constantly looking at the clock. If I'm writing something or if I'm writing software, and not even like, and having that be so prevalent in my life, I didn't even notice or think that was weird or think anything was wrong with that. But it was like, I was not present and enjoying most moments. That has really shifted dramatically. One way I relate to that is like, now, whenever I notice myself wanting something to be different or 
I naturally go to this place of like, okay, what's the emotion or what's the internal experience that I don't want to be with right now? And I know it's the reason that something is uncomfortable is because there's some internal experience that's trying to come up in me that I'm not wanting to allow. And I kind of see each of these experiences, these emotions, they're some emotion that has come up in the past that we weren't really able to process then. And now when it comes up, it's getting on a roller coaster. And the roller coaster starts going and it goes... And it's ramping up and something's happening in our body and we're like, oh, I'm anxious Oh, whatever the thing is. And we have the choice at any moment to distract ourselves and jump off the roller coaster or let it keep intensifying and then go on the ride until it comes again to a stop. And we imagine that we are not going to be able to take it. We imagine that if we don't do something, if we don't distract ourselves, if we pay attention to this emotion, it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger forever. And it's not true. And if we're able to stay on the roller coaster and also be grounded and connected to ourselves and be able to have compassion for our experience, the emotion ramps up, then kind of moves through our body, takes us on this ride and comes to a stop. And once we experience that, it's like whenever we feel that roller coaster starting again, one, it's not going to be as intense the next time. It kind of emotions kind of flush through our system when we allow them. But two, we know that, oh, last time this came up, all I had to do was close my eyes, sit down, be present with what's happening and take the ride. And then I had choice, interact with whatever the stimulus was, do whatever I need to do. I don't need to jump off it. And I think part of saying like I was spending 90% of my time thinking of waiting for something to be over, those thoughts of like waiting for something to be over or thinking about the next thing or not being present was my way of continuously jumping off all of the small roller coasters that were starting. And now when thoughts like that arise for me, I'm much more able to be like, okay, something's uncomfortable. Let's just sit down and close my eyes and be with this. And the emotions can be intense, but the range of emotions that are unbearable is is like, or like, don't feel like I can really be present with them or like greatly reduced, I would say. Wow. That is something that we were just talking about today, actually. I don't know if you've read The Untethered Soul. Only bits. I was on a, a Michael Singer kick earlier late last year, I read The Surrender Experiment and then Living from a Place of Surrender, which are both really, really fantastic. Great. I haven't read them yet. And I've just, I've only just been introduced to it by Janie. And particularly, I was voicing, uh, similar to what you were saying now, how of being become more aware of my tendency to, as you so amazingly put it, leap off the roller coaster, like avoid pain it's a reflex reaction, you know, and I think it's kind of reinforced in our society in many ways. It's just like distraction Absolutely. after distraction. So yeah, the practice is just sitting with it and going, oh, okay, I'm, I'm trying to jump off again. Why don't I just sit with it and see what happens? Yeah. Because you know, on the other side, like you just said, it doesn't just build and build and we explode. <laughs> it diminishes yeah. and it actually we offload that stuff that's building up consistently if we just hop off the roller coaster. So 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that because we were just talking about it. And so you were saying that your life, this is one of the main things that has transformed your experience of everyday reality. This yeah, absolutely. Amazing. So um, one of the main things that we want to address in this show is actually how to overcome fear. And I think that um, you would have some great insights into how to do that through this type of work, this lens. Yeah, my life particularly. When I started this work, I knew I was pushing down anger. I was pretty fluid with my sadness and grief. I always felt really comfortable crying. I didn't even know to the level that I had fear and it was crippling to me. I was really blind to that. And part of that is I think part of the whole not feeling safe in my body and being dissociated a lot of my life, I think comes from birth trauma for me. And my understanding, stuff as my mom remembers, is when I was born, I was stuck in the birth can. And then I was there for a long time and I swallowed merconium, which is like baby feces. And I needed to get my stomach pumped. So like one of my first moments as a human being outside of the womb is being taken away from my mom and having strange people in weird suits shove something down my throat. And through my healing process, there's been many times where intense fear will come up and I will feel like infant and really be deeply, deeply terrified that everybody around me is trying to kill me. And that's just something that my body holds. And I've done a lot of processing around that. Really depends on like who you are and the level of trauma and feeling safe. So there's like little fears and there's totally major fears. But for working through fear, I think shedding stuff like that. So identifying the... Read the book. Is that an important part of the healing process? I don't know that identify this stuff would have happened whether or not I knew the story from my mom. That wasn't a really important bit of it, but um, it was useful. The Waking the Tiger, the somatic experiencing book, is really explains a lot about like the importance of reliving past experience and kind of changing the outcome of it and also talks about the shaking response that happens with animals and with humans. Or another great resource for like trauma and the healing of trauma is, uh, what is that book? Is it a Body Keeps There's Score? like one trauma book. The Body That's Keeps the one. But the idea is like for fear particularly, we get a freeze response. And in order to let that go, we need to shake and we kind of stuff that down, particularly if it's not safe right afterwards and we're in a safe environment. And there is like a lot of modalities to support in this. But before seeing somebody like really go a kind of like traumatic, like a discharge of trauma and of intense fear, not have known what something like that looks like, but it looks like an exorcism. It's like full-on uncontrollable body is shaking and screaming, and it's like a reliving of some past experience, and really like letting your body do kind of redo some of the actions and complete them in a different way in a container of love and safety where people are really supporting you through that. Yeah, so you can get tastes of that, like from somatic experiencing practitioners, that's like what they do, or IFS, 
or Hakomi are like body-oriented psychotherapies that can have like really intense emotions that come with like bodily sensations coming happening and a lot of different like people who would call themselves body workers or energy healers or things like that can help support through processes like this but that's for like really deep-seated fear that's very challenging to kind of process on your own I would say I that's been my experience oh so are you suggesting that fear it's something that must be tackled on a body level is it something like uh, people can go to a therapist and it's often just talking through their problems and, but like, is it something that's stored in the body that needs to be released? So it's a holistic healing to overcome fear and to um, deal with the triggers? Yeah, I think there's different components. Particularly there's like intellectual components and beliefs. And sometimes what we call fear might be like stories that we tell ourselves about what would happen in particular scenarios. And then there's like the body portion of it. It's like, oh, actually knowing that this situation would be okay in our bodies. You kind of need to tackle both. One of the things I learned from Joe Hudson was fear particularly requires like a false end. That there's some situation that you're imagining wouldn't be okay. And he talks about, I think it's, samurai or some warrior class imagining going into battle and being pierced with a sword and then imagining the pain and then imagining slowly dying and then imagining the battle ending and then imagining their body slowly decomposing like this is a pretty extreme one to be able to overcome like the fear of death but for anything, it's like, I'm so scared of sending this email, my boss might be get upset. And in my body, it's like, oh, no, that's really bad. There's something bad about that. And one aspect is like, okay, really be able to be with the emotion of what if my boss is upset with me. But for the intellectual beliefs, it's like, okay, and then what? And it's like, well, then he might fire me. Okay, that's really bad. Okay, and then what? Well, and then I would have to find another job. And what if I don't find another job? Okay. And then what? Well, then I'd have to go live with my parents. Okay. And then what? And then my dad's going to tell me that he disappointed me and I should find a job. Okay. And then what? And our emotions are giving us heuristics about, oh, this situation, this is good. This is bad. Oh, I can deal with this. I can't deal with this. And one tool is resolving that on an emotional level at each step. And the next tool is like looking at the thing behind it and really seeing like, well, is that okay? And is that okay? And, and you get to the state where it's like, oh, there's nothing that is unbearable. I think recently I came to this realization for myself. There've been many moments in my life where I was worried that something would happen that I wouldn't be able to bear or get through. And looking backwards on my life, I can recognize a lot of those times where I had the fear that that would happen, but there's no moment in my life that was unbearable. Like ultimately I made it through every moment and yeah. So there's the belief aspect and there's the emotional aspect. Yeah. And you know what, Brian, I find the same thing and I've been through quite a lot now and this work seems to almost like create more of a cushion. So the commitment to this work and, and processing as a situation arises creates this like type of resiliency and it takes down the resistance. So it creates this kind of almost a detachment where 
I'm willing to process anything at the time. And now it reduces my fear of anything because knowing that there is no such thing as unbearable. I've made it through much like, you know, tough times and I'm still here and thriving. Yeah. Yeah. And that's brilliant the way you described it. It sounds like uh, it's kind of a hybrid with the kind of more everyday fears, not the deep seated traumas, but the more everyday, like sending a boss an email that it's kind of feeling what's in your body and also understanding what is going on, what your mind is, what story your mind is running about this that's going to happen and kind of deconstructing that as well. So kind of hybrid of somatic and mind work. Totally. Hmm. And when I hear you say it's like not with the really deep seated trauma, with the everyday, what I find is in my experience, going through that process around the everyday stuff is what leads to the really deep-seated trauma coming up. In my it, in my path, it's more like the thought process is like, oh, I might lose my job. Okay, I might go down. The fear for me has been like, oh, I'm going to be triggered and not be able to really function well and then run out of resources and then my wife will be upset with me and my family will be upset with me and I'll keep being more and more triggered. And then the core of it is like, oh, and then like everyone is going to abandon me and no one's going to take care of me and I'm going to die. And like, that's like going down the levels. It's like, oh, holy shit. I did not realize that was a belief. There's this belief where it's like, if I can keep myself mentally sane, I'm okay. But if I get too out of it, I will not be supported. If I can't take care of myself in some way, if I lost my mind, I would be abandoned and then I would die. And that's a big weight on a person. And it starts with like, oh, can I send this person this email? And it goes all those levels. Wow. So would you think it's fair to say that all great things are on the other side of fear? I don't know. There's a lot of great things that are on the other side of grief and anger as well. (laughs) (laughs) So all great things are on the other side of um, deep emotions, feeling deep emotions, whatever opportunity there is to seize. Totally. Any experience we have is great for us because of the stories we're telling ourselves and the sensations we're experiencing. And the more we can incorporate and be with like anger, fear, grief, they can feel awesome or at least welcome. Our body sending us signals about our preferences or about what brings us aliveness or about what we love or really care about. We can interpret them in all sorts of different ways and we can resist to them. In a lot of cultures, like funerals and grieving are celebrations of life. And it's like, oh my God, I feel so much intense emotion in my heart that this person that is so dear to me is no longer here. And how beautiful is it that they have impacted my life in such a way that this is the reaction that happens in me when they move on. And that can be really beautiful. Yeah. And anger is telling me about my boundaries and my values and what kind of world I want to see. And that's beautiful. And fear 
is pointing towards aliveness. It's like, oh, this is something I care about. This is exciting. This is novelty. And any extreme sports or skydiving or anything like that, it's like the difference between like fear and exhilaration is like the story I'm telling myself about the experience that I'm having and the emotions that I'm having and whether I'm resisting them or not. Oh my God, that's, uh, we're gonna have to take that and quote you on it. Powerful. Yeah. So it's kind of almost like reframing and kind of making friends with these big emotions and facing them, I guess, is what I interpreted from that. Welcoming. Yeah. Welcoming, Welcoming. them. Yeah, that's probably a better way of putting that. Integrating. And so because we're kind of exploring fear and overcoming fear and what lies on the other side of facing it and kind of welcoming it. And yeah, our premise is growth and rebuilding a life that you love is on the other side of kind of facing. Yeah, welcoming is a way better concept, I think, than facing. Facing feels like you're about to have like some kind of showdown with it. Yeah. Rather than necessary. But actually, as you framed it, Brian, it's absolutely it's a gift because it shows you how passionate you are and how exhilarating that idea is that it it elicits such a reaction in your body. And so that it it is welcome. It's a tool for self-awareness. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reading When Things Fall Apart right now by Pema Chodron, I think. And it's all about fear and what happens when it's a great book it's a great book and she has a story in it where it's like there's a buddhist parable and a student is learning to conquer fear and do battle with fear and fear is this big scary monster and this student comes up and asks in battle and fear comes right up to her face and it's like that and she asks, like how do i defeat you and fear is like I'm going to scare you and like make you do this and that. And then you're going to, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do and you're going to listen to me and you're going to go do it. And you're going to do this and this and this and this. And if you don't listen to me, I have no power. (laughs) And yeah, and it just talks about, it's like, oh yeah, you just like ask fear what it's about, I guess. Now realizing I don't exactly remember the parable and it didn't give the the, me- the same message as the original parable it precisely, but the book is great. It's all about fear. Brilliant, because we were going to ask you about books, actually. We were like, is there any books? Well, I was anyway. Um, Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, I think he mentioned a few already that I've... I know, that we'll put in the show notes. So thank you. All books that I haven't read. So that's always great. So actually, yeah, we are coming on time. So I'd just, I'd love to know what you're working on now, Brian, what you'd like us to help promote. Yeah, I am interested in taking on more coaching clients. That's something that I've decided I really want to pursue in my life right now. So anybody that this resonates with, I'd be really happy to talk to. I tend to work with people and leaders in technology, but really anybody who's interested in really deeply exploring their own emotions, how their emotions are driving their relationships with others and with themselves and want to go through a journey of self-inquiry. Love that. And you also mentioned that you're thinking of um, like creating more thought leadership. Yeah, definitely. One thing I'm working on in myself right now is transforming my, and with my coach is transforming my relationship with writing. And I have found it really challenging to write 
with the fear that comes up and the self-criticism and it's hard for me, it has been hard for me to separate like the kind of brainstorming ideas generation and creativity from the editing and the editing happens in line and like kills my creativity. And this has happened for me in, with like meditation and exercise where I've kind of shifted from viewing these things as like, oh, I need to do this for some outcome to like, oh, can I also, as I'm exercising and I'm thinking I can't do this, it's okay if I stop the exercise for a bit, but just be with the emotion and the fear of I can't do this and treating writing in the same way. So I'm actually writing a short story right now, which I've never done before. And I'm like very excited. And then I want to write more around like emotional and human psychology topics, similar to some of the things we've just been talking about. That this podcast is a really great way to kickstart that for me. Definitely. So is that fiction or nonfiction? The short story is fiction. I want to be writing mostly nonfiction, but this particular short story, I'm very, very excited about. Well, I'm very, very excited to read it. Yeah, I actually had the same block, same as you recently, like just realizing that I love writing. And all this time, I've uh, like admired people who are writers and just wish that I could be a writer. And then yesterday on like a little bit of an overdose of mushrooms, I was just like, I experienced fucking ecstasy of like just allowing myself to be a writer. I'm like, what? All this time. Yeah, I'm a writer because I write. And then I experienced this flow. It was like literally magical. My hand was just, it couldn't stop for like six hours straight. I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And it was literally one of my favorite feelings I've ever experienced. It was so wow. cool. And I hope that that inspires you to um, maybe do <laughs> some psychedelics. Do some mushrooms. No, See what my, happens. my writing kick has started. I was on quite large dose of LSD on Saturday. And the story came to me as part of that trip. And now I'm articulating it. But also I did a lot of other writing more in a work context, but like really laying out what my experience was at work while during that trip also is really powerful and really dove into some deep fear places for me and exploring this thing of like trust and if I lose my mind and I'm not functional everyone's going to abandon me and I'm going to die and all that it's really cathartic it's really beautiful and powerful and I'm so excited that you're embracing that creative outlet me too it's really new for me yeah (laughs) and claiming you're a writer because you write It doesn't matter, like, you know, there is going to be somebody that it resonates with. Even if it's just yourself, that's the win. That's what I told myself, at least. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, I'm really telling myself, it's like, the, the intention is to go through the activity of writing and use it as another experience to enjoy and to widen my net of experiences and to have more self-inquiry and to see what comes up in me as I go through that process. We've had so much fun talking to you. I've learned a lot from this short conversation. So thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been really, really helpful and illuminating. And I hope our audience gets a lot out of this. It really is a part of the consciousness shift, actually, that we are becoming more self-aware. And literally, the most important part of that is being embodied in our experience. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that is so important because I think nowhere in my life have I been encouraged to be in my body. It's just all about what your brain can do. And I mean, in my experience anyway, and a lot of people I know's experience, it's about, like you said, I'm a brain in a meat sack or whatever, however you you said you are burning that. So I think for a lot of people, this focus on body is so powerful. 
So I'm really glad that you explain more about that for how people can experience their body more. So that's great. Thank you. You're so welcome. I'm looking forward to hearing this podcast. I'm I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank oh, that was wonderful. We had so much fun, Brian. This was awesome. Thank you so much for listening to Living Off Course. For links to any resources, books, etc. that we mentioned in the show, please check out the show notes on our website, livingoffcourse.com. And to stay up to date with our latest episodes, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcasting platforms. Thank you so much again, and we look forward to seeing you next week.